Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in to yet another Swift Half with Snowden, the fortnightly half-hour chat show in which I talk to a person of interest, by which I don't mean um, a, a suspect in an ongoing police investigation, although we can't be sure. We do try and do due diligence, but some bad apples about to slip through the net. But I mean a person who is interesting uh, and who you may or may not know, and this week it is Mr Johnny Kitson. He is a researcher and super forecaster and i want to start johnny by asking you about super forecasting because a lot of people probably think it's a kind of self-aggrandizing arrogant load of um, nonsense and flimflam but that's not true is it well i mean it was inve- the term was invented by uh, by an american so you know they're very uh, they're very enthusiastic people um super forecasting is a term it was kind of invented well i mean it was invented by a uh, an american psychologist called philip tetlock uh who had spent a long you know decades basically researching expert predictions. And in 2011, there was a uh, competition uh, hosted by IARPA, the sort of intelligence um, side of DARPA, you know what that is? No. They're the people who like, created the internet, they're like advanced research projects. Um, basically to see if they could find individuals um, who could predict the future accurately. Mm. And he put together a online crowdsourced um, competition and he found that there's about 2% of the people that were involved in it who are very accurate and when you put them together they become even more accurate at predicting any given scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got involved in about 2017. I forecasted over 250 questions and on any kind of like given question on the, I turns out I'm about 75 to 80% accurate. I'll be right about 75 oh, to 80% of the time. And that puts you in the top, what, how many percentiles of super forecasters? Of super forecasters? Or of the general public, for that matter? Well, I mean, they were, the obviously you get quite a, um, the sort of, get, you, you get like a slightly weird mix. It wasn't necessarily just the general public who were forecasting. Mm. Within super forecasters, I'm not like one of the absolute best. Um, probably, you know, like the top 30, 30% of super forecasters. But it's a very small number of people. Sure. So you're top top percentile worldwide, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's the trick to it? Because these aren't issues necessarily that you have any expertise on. You you re- do your search and yeah, so yeah. on, presumably. But you, apart from that, it's something that you might not have known anything about a few weeks earlier. So what is the trick to doing it? Um, part of the trick is identifying patterns. So it's a lot of it's like pattern recognition. Uh, has this thing happened before? Is it likely to happen again? Um, so you come into thinking about something in a very different way. Probably the best example is um, thinking about the 2016 presidential election. Uh-huh. Lots of people saw that as a contest between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And they've got lots of opinions about both of those people. Whereas people like me would come in and think about that. Okay, well, it's between red and blue. So how often does blue win? How often does red win? Mm-hmm. You get about eight years of blue, you get about eight years of red. Mm-hmm. That's where your like, starting point is. Right. Um, so you come in, you look at that, and you go, oh, right, okay, red's going to win. And then you look at red and go, oh, good heavens. Um, hope that doesn't win. Um, but, you know, you try and keep as much emotion of it out of it as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just thinking that the base rate, this occurs this many times. Um, 
that's kind of like where you go from it. But a lot of it's pattern recognition as well. Is it true that supposed experts are worse at predicting things than the, the you know a random name from the phone book? Um, so it's uh, broadly speaking, yes. And that's why because they get too emotionally involved in it or overconfidence or what? Um, I mean. They don't they're not necessarily paid to think about predictions, they're paid to know a lot about a particular subject. But shouldn't that help making a prediction? It should help, yeah, but if you're, you know, if you can only see in like a very, very narrow sort of sense, um, you're not necessarily thinking about other factors that come into play. And can you translate this to winning big on sports book betting? Well, um, <laughs> uh, well have you? I, no, I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm I'm probably one of, one of your guests who's like gambled the least in their life. My, that was the one thing I was told when I was growing up, never get involved. I'm not in. encouraging to gamble if you don't gamble. Well, no, no, I just... I, and it's not just necessarily you, but the, the super forecasters in general. I mean, what you They put their money put, where their mouth is, isn't it? Um, lots of them do, but I also think, you know, that like, it's not just sports betting, right? If you can predict the future, then why don't you just go and work at a hedge fund? Which is something yeah. that I've heard, like, quite a lot. Uh-huh. Um, some, of, some of my colleagues do do that, you know, they're, they're investors and... Bet big on things uh, in that sort of sense, um, but I've got a slightly unusual background, which you know I'm sure you'll we'll come to in a minute. Yeah. yeah. What? So being a super forecaster, this is an actual qualification, as it were. Yeah. Don't you become an official? So, right? so who who decides you're a super forecaster? And how do you take the exam or whatever? Well, what's, so the, the, what's the process? Um, the guy who I mentioned before, Phil Tetlock, yeah. he set up a company. Uh, called Good Judgment, and they basically run an online sort of plat- platform for anybody to go on and log online and, and forecast, um, and then they regularly kind of look at, okay, who's performing really well? Get and Once they've answered about 100 questions, because you can be like, you know, you can randomly say, I think the Tories are going sure, yeah. to win this election, you look really, really smart, but if, like, every other thing you say is not as well, you know, calibrated, yeah. you just got lucky. Yeah. Um, it's about consistency. So it's about 100 questions, which can take about a year to... And um, they're, well, they're, so they're all things that you'll, be, you'll have the results within a year, effectively. The kind of, yeah. I mean, so what very, kind of, can you give me some examples? Um, so... We can't, so, I mean, there was a coronavirus challenge, for instance. Mm. So there were hundreds of questions on coronavirus. Um, or how it was going to affect different countries, effect, uh, levels, levels of infections, numbers of deaths. Um, you know, there were about, there, there were well over, a, if you'd have been forecasting in 2020, you would have definitely got to 100 questions mm. um, pretty quickly. Oh, a lot of them about COVID. Yeah, there were, lots, there were lots about COVID as well, yeah. How do you rate the, um, the various models of COVID from Imperial and uh, London School Triple Hygiene? I didn't pay very much attention oh, to them. Oh, did you? No. Oh, I thought you'd have been... Paying a lot of attention to them. I did, and they were really bad. Yeah. Really bad. You know, once once you got to the point where you could actually test them, in other words, once the government stopped locking down every time one of these models came out, yeah. and they said, actually, we are going to get rid of all, all restrictions, even though your model says that tens of, or hundreds of thousands of people are going to die if we get rid of all the restrictions. That's exactly what we're going to do. Mm. And then they, um, well, you know what happened. Not, not a great deal happened, really. A few bumps here or there, but nothing like what was predicted. And then you had this weird thing. Maybe you can explain this, because I certainly can't. Graham Medley, he was like the head of the, the modelers for Sage. He said, the, and to be fair, all the models said this as well, but it didn't make it make any more sense, that this is a projection, not a prediction. A projection, I, looked, I even looked it up in the dictionary. It basically just says another word for prediction. <laughs> I mean, if they're yeah. not predictions, of obviously they're... they're um, Predictions that are it depend on certain variables, right? But if, if the, all the variables are in place, e.g., you know this is what's going to happen 
if the government gets rid of all restrictions, the government gets all restrictions. That then, I think, becomes a prediction. Mm. Uh, it becomes a reasonable prediction in the same way that if you say, well, if Ronaldo plays tonight, United are going to win, yeah. right? <laughs> that's, if he plays, they're going to, you know, then they, they have to win because that's a prediction. If he doesn't play, fair enough. You're not going to, mm. obviously, you don't judge the, the model on that, but that's, that's not all people were doing. I mean, it, it did kind of strike me as quite strange that... Um there are lots of experts who basically seem to assume that the, 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 there would be no vaccination campaign whatsoever, and they assumed, they, and it just seemed like they were they were forgetting that there were like prime prime effect, you know antibody levels. Mm, yes, they just seem to like throw that all out the window. And also, um, as they, I mean, they admit themselves that they didn't really bother inputting any kind of change in human behaviour, yeah. right? So unless there were any legal restrictions, they just assumed that people would be acting like yeah, they going were coughing in, on each other in yeah. 2019, and that means it's kind of well. What's the point I, I, of this I, model that's based on a totally unrealistic scenario? Yeah, I find it really interesting, you know, in the, like, you know, big pandemic scenario where lo loads and loads of people are going to die, um, that, no, that they just assumed that everyone would just continue as normal. Like, yeah. People want to live, right? You know, they are going to change their behaviour. Um, and you did especially, because this brings us on to the, the second topic, which is your, your lifelong disease of cystic fibrosis, which is, I mean... Has had a severe, obviously, a severe yeah. effect, and you've been in that hospital many, many times. It sounds bloody awful. So you were and are clinically vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so what was that like for two years? Um, I mean, it was it was. So I came back from a holiday in Scotland on the second of January, twenty twenty, and started forecasting this. And I went, "Oh dear me, this this seems quite severe. Um, this doesn't seem very good." And I, so cystic fibrosis is like a chronic lung disease, basically. You produce too much bad stuff in your lungs and then you get like repeat infections. It's not very good. Um, so I, I was kind of, I was shielding before it, before we, you know, we really had a name for that sort of thing. Right. Um, I was, was really quite afraid of it uh, because, you know, it's a chest thing. <laughs> well, yeah. That's what we thought it was, you know. It's a chest thing, this doesn't seem very good, you know, people are dropping dead in the streets from what you can see in, uh, from the footage coming out of China. Um, so I, I was really quite restricted, particularly in like the first six months. Mm. I was very, very um, cautious. Um, it was a little bit difficult because there wasn't very much information on what the impact of what it would be like on people with cystic fibrosis. Right, yeah. Because there's about 12,000 people with cystic fibrosis in the UK, and there were only about 100 infections in the first year. Because everybody so was, everyone's doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah everyone was, right. you know, like really, really trying to. Um, and how do they get on it. then? What's, what's well, the it turns out actually, it's it, it doesn't act. It's as long as you're young and you know not, your lung function is relatively okay. It's not too bad of an infe infection oh, right. for people with CF, particularly once you've been vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you look back and think, oh, it was very silly, but I think there was so little information that... No, it's um, totally understandable. I mean, yeah. there were people who, there was nothing wrong with them at all. They were very worried about getting COVID, and, yeah. and you know, a lot of them with good reason. Um, so have you had COVID? It doesn't sound nope. like you have. You managed, you're what, the one in ten people who've managed to... I've, avoid I've, I mean, I've been travelling quite a lot in the last few weeks and still managed to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Touch wood. And you've been triple vaccinated, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not really that worried about it. No, I'm not basically. worried at all. I'm, I'm just not worried at all. Because the clinically vulnerable are the, the likes of Independence Age. Mm. What, you know, when they say we've got to continue, you know, basically just living a different life to <laughs> what yeah. we're used to forever, is you know, long COVID and clinically vulnerable people. Yeah. And long COVID. I mean, I, firstly, I don't think there's any answer to it, right? Ninety percent of the population have already had it. So what are we really trying to achieve, right? Mm. If people, I assume if someone has it once, they're not very likely to, to die the second time. Um, 
And so, I mean, long COVID, I think the jury's out really on how serious that is and how many people have, have had it. And clinically vulnerable people, it's like, well, what can you do? I mean, clinically mm. vulnerable people are vulnerable to lots of things, presumably, which is why they're, yeah. they're called there are, there, are, there are definitely people who are far more vulnerable than people with cystic fibrosis now. Such as? Um, uh, people who lack immune systems, so, you know, people who've, you know... But they, wouldn't they be killed by getting the flu or getting a cold? There, or are, there are lots of other things that would affect them as well. So just, mm. I think, focusing on COVID itself is, right. is just like, you know, COVID is, in, in the UK, at least COVID is over, as, as far as I'm concerned. Good man, that's why so, I think too. You know, I mean, also, you know, you've got far more drugs, you know, to treat COVID mm. these days. There's a, they know a lot more about it. Um, but that was a real kind of... Because uh, with forecasting, when I was forecasting Brexit, it, I was doing that quite literally from hospital bed. And... I remember they were, they were spending a huge amount of money preparing for no deal, no deal Brexit in 2019. So I kind of had this experience of, of them just like, they've really got this wrong. This is quite incredible. You know, the people who are supposed to be running the country have like really got it wrong. And then when COVID hit, it was like that, but like ramped all the way up to 11. And that was very kind of, I, for me at least, that was quite shocking. Because we all kind of sit around and joke about, oh, well, you know, this, they've wasted a load of money on X or Y or Z. Um, but then when something like really serious came around, it's like, these guys have got no idea what they're doing. Yeah, you sense that very early on, obviously. Yeah. From just, from, from what? Because, I mean, even the people who were doing the, the official modelling were saying we basically used Wikipedia to yeah. try to work out what the... Well, the I'm very lucky that I, know, that I know some very, very smart people like uh, Saloni Tatani, mm -hmm. um, some other forecasters. There's, there's a guy in the US uh, called uh, Juan Camberino, um, and they were all looking at it, like, going, these guys have got no idea what's going on. Um, but you could see it from Twitter. I mean, there was that, that infamous tweet about the, about the masks thing, right? You shouldn't be wearing a mask. And there are lots at of all. those. You have to narrow it and, down a bit. You know, it's like the Surgeon General of Public Health England. Which one? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the infamous tweet was like, "Hey, uh, room, there's 800 epidemiologists in this room, and we don't we don't think there's any. You need to wear a mask. Oh, really? Right. So you know nothing." And then they like switched, reversed within like four weeks. It was, yeah, it was quite. It was quite I saw the exact opposite of that a couple of weeks ago on Twitter. It was some epidemiologist convention, and it was like this is our first epidemiologist convention in in three years in the yeah. flesh. Everybody is wearing a mask. Yeah, <laughs> probably don't need all to of them out. triple vaccinated. <laughs> honest, yeah. I mean, well, you know. But there's a relatively new treatment now for cystic fibrosis. There is, yeah. Tell I mean, us about that. So. Thank God for the American healthcare system. Um, mm -hmm. the Best in the world. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it basically subsidises drug development for the rest of Indeed the, it does, for, yeah, for the rest yeah. of the world. Uh, yeah. So um, there's a new gene therapy. I'm very. I'm a big. Opt I'm actually quite a big optimist. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of living proof of this is this new gene therapy. Um, the UK brand name is. Um, uh, Caftrio, not that it matters because it wouldn't do anything for you, but basically it solves um, the genetic problem that I have mm. by taking it. So my lung function wasn't very good, put lots of people with cystic fibrosis, it's a degenerative disease. Uh, this kind of, effectively, the damage that's done is done, but it effectively cures me. And it's very, very exciting to have a genetic disease which was a massive, massive problem for decades. Mm. And it makes me very optimistic about the future of treating right, yeah. other kinds of genetic diseases. When you say it cures you, you mean, do you have to keep taking it for it to You have to keep taking it, yeah, yeah. But it's like just taking, um, it's, two ta it's two tablets a day. Like the HIV drug or something like that? Yeah, well, um, yes, yeah. And how much does it cost? Is it still under patent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It costs a lot of money. But the NHS is... <laughs> Thank you, Matt Hancock. He's putting, it's, um, he's putting his hand in his pocket for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did, yeah. When so, is it, do you know when it becomes generic? 
Because it's never that long, is it, really? Uh, it's been like another... I mean, it was 2019 when it was approved by oh, the really? FDA, so... Right. OK, it'll be a while there, I suppose. Yeah. What is it, 20 years or something? It might be, it might be twenty years, yeah. Mm. But it's an it's an amazing drug, and it just it's it, you know, having had access to this incredible medical innovation, it really makes you just very optimistic about the future. Yeah, and about your future specifically. Well, I mean, like everybody's future. I mean, you know, the 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 treatments for like sickle cell disease, which was, you know, like a very very bad, painful disease. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're well on the way effectively to curing that as well. I mean, it's just remarkable. It is pretty cool. What was, what was the life expectancy of somebody with cystic fibrosis before this came along? Uh, I'd have four years left, so about 30, 31. Is it that low? I thought it was at least 40. Good no. God. It was low. Wow, wow. Um, let's talk about something completely different. The Army. Yeah. Something I've seen you write about. Uh, I don't know much about the Army, but I do know it's... A bit, um, a bit thin on the ground compared to what it used to be. What's, what's the problem you think with the British military? Um, I think the procurement is, has been done very badly, and it's Go been on. done very badly for a long time. There was a pro you know, the big problem is that the, the Iraq War effectively um, took the British Army away from what its what its role, primary role should be, which is to defeat a peer adversary and, well, contribute to a NATO force that is defeating a peer adversary. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I think everyone's a little bit reassured that the peer adversary we potentially we're going to fight has uh, proven itself not to be as competent as it, perhaps everybody thought. Uh -huh. um, but the British Army suffered for a very long time in not really knowing what its role is. Is it a counterinsurgency force? Is it supposed to be a, a, you know, a very powerful armoured striking force? Is it supposed to be you know, something that's... It, quite small in support of special operations and because of this there's lots of dithering there's no per there's no single person who's in charge of setting the um kind of like the procurement objectives for all three services mm -hmm. so they get to decide themselves and what that means if you're the army and you don't really know what you're doing because you're on one minute you're in iraq fighting insurgency and insurgency um you don't prioritize things in the way that you need to so it took Perhaps I think it was it was, it was approaching certainly twenty years for them to decide that they actually wanted to upgrade Challenger, the main battle tank. And really? Right. Yeah. Why? Because, because it's dithering so bureaucracy. It's bureaucracy. People get moved on. Um, you know, you have basically officers who are given two years. You're in charge of this particular this particular procurement thing. Mm -hmm. You've only got it for two years. All you're kind of wanting to do is just like not mess anything up. But what that means is you don't really have ownership of something. Yeah, people do move on very quickly in the army, don't they? Yeah. Um, okay. We've had. I mean, so like the head of the head of the army moves on very very quickly as well. So is it like the NHS? Like, there's plenty of money there. It's just not being spent properly. Um, I mean, they, they, there's not as much money as there probably should be, um, but lots and lots of money is being wasted. And after a while, you do start to think, if we just give them any more money, they, they are just going to waste it. We're not, so we're not going to give them any at all. You know? Right. They wasted. They completely wasted well over a billion pounds in in deciding, not even buying, <laughs> deciding to buy a, a certain armored vehicle called Boxer, uh, which is remarkable wow. when you think about it. Aren't the, the wars of the future are going to be fought with drones and robots anyway? Um, but you still need the ability to hold ground. So, you know, I think the the drone. I mean, it's the it's the sort of without getting too technical. Certainly, the Western sort of kill chain, which we're seeing in. Um, by which you identify the target, you get the precise targeting information, then you destroy it. Mm. That is becoming much more sort of aerial, um, yeah. kind of focused. They're pretty cool, aren't they? 
Yeah. I mean, uh, Pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. The pinpoint accuracy. Yeah. And that's been, up until the Ukraine, that's basically been the way wars have been fought, but from the West, isn't it? You just go to some country that can't really defend itself and just pick, like, literally pick individuals, like Jihadi John is like, bang. Um, since, the, since 1990s, yeah, that's been kind of yeah. the, um, the Western way of war is very much an aerial one. But you do need the ability to, um, you know, protect your own, so- protect your own soldiers um, and, you know, you, you, you need the ability to move pretty fast as well, which is, which is difficult with um, just soldiers, just infantry soldiers. Mm. So and you know, it's, a bit, it's a big challenge and, um, you know, I think the, the army has not had a very good sort of 20 years at all. What's your interest in the army? Have you got family in it? Or no, no, I just, um, I, I just like complex problems. So right. I just, just was like, you know, <laughs> um, it was submarines initially, and then I sort of got interested in, in uh, other kind of procurement failures. Submarines are very cool as well. Yeah, I'd love to go on a submarine. I think they're, they're awesome. They always feel to me as if they were invented too early, submarines. Like oh, yeah. If you look at the chain of inventions over the years, it feels to me like the submarine should have been invented no earlier than the 1930s. I feel this way about the London Underground as well. It's, it blows my mind that it was around in like the mid 19th century. It mm. feels like we shouldn't have had the kind of technology to dig like that until well into the 20th century. Where, where do you put aircraft in that sort of? Aircraft, I think, are exactly right. Maybe I'm using aircraft yeah. really as a sort of as a marker because aircraft that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So it's amazing how do, it, it's but submarines, in a way, are more amazing than aircraft. I yeah, think. So I mean, the fact I mean, that they were invented decades earlier is weird. It's, it's very sad to me that um, we haven't seen the kind of innovation in, in aircraft that we've seen in other sort of areas. You know, well, we did Concorde and then we like went back. Yeah, that was you know that, that was that a big sign of decline, wasn't it? Yeah, we can no longer fly across the Atlantic as fast as we could fifty years ago. But that's the, the, the crazy thing about the crazy thing about about Concorde is that it's kind of the. Um, the the, Ameri- the the Americans were quite literally regulated out of making a Concorde, Concorde competitor. Really? Why? Yeah. Um, just budget, you know, internal budget cuts, and they didn't, didn't want to do it. So why you know, couldn't the private sector do it? Um, that's a good question. But <clears throat> I think if you're not, if you're limited in terms of like your overground speed, then you just you you innovate in different ways. So you. You know, you end up with more fuel-efficient kind of aircraft, but they're all cruising at the same speed, rather than going for just like pure speed, which there probably would, there probably is a market for. But you know, the, you, if there's no like market discovery process, then it's difficult to kind of find out. But we did find out because we had Concorde for we had Concorde, for but years, it didn't. Years, years. Did it never make any money? I mean, it was very expensive to run. I'd, you'd have to ask uh, someone, who, someone who was involved in it. It's very, very cool technology, though. Yeah, too right. Yeah. Final topic, Johnny. Intergenerational strife. Um, you are a young person. We always like to have young people on the show. <laughs> and I met you when you were significantly younger, in fact, at Freedom, yeah. Freedom Week, best, best part of 10 years ago, I expect. Um, safe to say that since then, things are not, prospects have not got much better for, for young people, particularly with regards to things like buying a house. How do you think the Tories can win back the under 40s? I think it's a very difficult problem for them because so we when we talk about like baby boomers we're, we're you know the UK the UK in particular is very very susceptible to American understandings of the world so we think that baby boomers are literally just born out straight after the war 
British baby boomers are actually born, like the big sort of like gap, you know, the big sort of bulge in the demographic pyramid is sort of kicking in when my parents were born. So my parents are like British baby boomers. Well, when so, were they born? So, and they were born in the 60s. So what is we're that the big? Is, it, is that bigger than like 1946? It's bigger than it's. In, I, in, as, as I understand it, yeah, because I was look. So it looks at the. Um, there's definitely a, a gap between the American between the American baby boomers and the British ones. Right. And what this means it's a is big, it's a big generation. Isn't it? It's like yeah, 1945 yeah. to 1965 covers a lot of. But a what lot this of means is that every incentive for the Tories is just to double down on that demographic now. They don't need. They don't need under. They, you know. They don't need like the under forties in order to win, and they won't need them for the next ten to fifteen years. And that's true of both parties. So mm-hmm. what you, it's like, what can the Tories do to win the under forties? It's actually like, do they do they need to? But and that's why it's such a difficult problem in terms. Are of you like, are you just make, are you just assuming that anything the government does to help the under forties will annoy the boomers? Is that is, is it as simple as that? Particularly with housing, you're assuming that. You know, your parents don't want your generation to buy a house. Oh, no, no, they, they, they want us to buy houses, but they don't want them to buy houses near them. They don't want to affect their yeah. own property values. I'm not saying this about my parents, by the way. My parents are very, very supportive of building new houses, whatever. Um, but it's just very difficult if you're trying to you know, get an electoral coalition together when there are so, when the, when the, there are so many votes weighted towards the... You know, the, uh, certainly the over 50s. Um, there are lots of things that, that the government could do to make people's lives easier, you know, allow massive expansion of, of house building. Probably you could, uh, you know, just cancel student debt. That, that would be pretty nice. Um, lots of things that the... I don't know about that, mate. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's not, not a very popular... Policy, not a very popular, probably, opinion around, uh, around at the IEA. Just stop sending people to university. I mean, that would be excellent. We could, we could close the nip, universities. Nip the problem in the bud by not allowing them to accumulate debt in the first place. Well, yeah, you could close the universities again. That's like a very, very difficult sort of problem. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't know if I could go quite that far, but you close know. most of them, yeah. But again, that's like that's really quite difficult to do because there's you know so much sort of bound up in the idea of um, skills. I think the UK is far too focused on broadly on skills. If we give pe- if we train people in skills, then we'll have yeah. a productive economy, which I don't think. I think we've, we've flogged that horse. So you need to create the jobs first and then create the people with the skills. Yeah, so I mean, the, if, if, you have, if you have, people will, people will tr- you know, lots of, lots of training occurs on the job as well. Yeah. Like, you know, pe- you, you get a job and then, right, that's when you then get skills. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the, the government really, this is any government, just needs to, like, stop thinking so much about skills. They get start. a bit obsessed with apprenticeships as well, don't they? And yeah. apprenticeships are good, but there's not actually that many trades you need an apprenticeship for. Yep. You know, they're just thinking bricky, basically, aren't they? Bricky and plumber and these. Okay, yeah. and then we, we do need more people who are brickies and plumbers, probably. But the idea that you know, either you should do a humanities degree or get an apprenticeship mm-hmm. and then you get the skills you need, you probably won't. But even, I, even that is like downstream of the fact that it's like very, very difficult to build new things. You know, if you if you allowed the building of far more things, and it's not just houses, it's very difficult to build effectively anything in the UK, yeah. um, you are going to have like more demand for uh, plumbers, bricklayers, etc. You know, you got you. By just sort of allowing that, but you know, it's the worst thing that Clement Attlee's government ever did was the 1947 Town and, town and Country Planning yeah, Act. Yeah, because I, I gather yeah. that before before that act came in, there wasn't weren't any planning regulations at all. I mean, if you own land, you could basically build on it. 
Yeah. There might have been something, you know, some way people could object, perhaps, if it was in some particular area. But basically, you buy yourself a plot of land somewhere, you can build yourself a farmhouse, and that's, that's the end of the story. Yeah. What do you think of Tony Blair's um, latest intervention, saying that we need to send 70% of kids to university? <laughs> I don't think that's a very good idea at all. So I think very... I, I think that's very, very poor. <laughs> what do you think of Tony Blair in general? Um, I think he's... Uh, there's a strong argument that he became Prime Minister too young, actually. Oh, yeah? A little bit too... So you, you like his later work? Yeah. Um, I mean, his later work with, like, the... the I mean, the, the pretty, pretty much one of the smartest interventions of any sort of politician um, was saying that we should, you know, use smaller doses, right, when we were, when we were doing COVID. Oh, did he say that? Yeah, yeah. What, the vaccines, man? Yeah, the vaccines. He was saying you should just give everybody one, sorry, not, not smaller doses, you should give everybody one shot rather than strictly limiting it to two shots, which the rest of the world then caught on to. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was sort of good in some ways on COVID. Yeah. On some ways not. I, th- I, think he's a, I, I think it's impossible to ignore the fact that he's a very skilled operator. And whether that's good or bad, that's up for up to up for other debate. It does make me very. Um, I think the, the one, one one like big regret, and this is coming from the IEA, is that they built so little social housing. They just did nothing. I think that's quite remarkable. Yeah, very good point. It's literally in the low thousands numbers of numbers of social housing built under the really? Labour government. Yeah, huh. this is quite remarkable to think about. So, unfortunately, yeah. everything is related to housing. It does seem to be. That's all the time we've got for. That's my alarm telling me that our half hour is nearly up. Um, thank you very much for watching. Before we go, just want to say congratulations to friend of the show, Ronnie O'Sullivan, on winning the World Championship for the seventh time. Um, you can see my interview with him if you, if you look on the IEA webpage uh, from May last year. But um, thanks very much for watching. Thank you very much in particular if you are one of our generous donors. If you'd like to become one, go to IEA.org uk slash donate or indeed go to our patreon patreon.com slash ia london um there's no question of us doxing you we are one of the officially one of the top rated think tanks in the uk for donor privacy we'll be back in a couple of weeks time take care of yourself goodbye